Hi everybody, this is David. Thanks for tuning in, and a quick note before the show. We're super excited about the way this podcast is unfolding. And if you can do us a huge favor, if you're listening on Apple or Stitcher or some other podcast app, please just take a second and give us a rating. And if you have an extra second, write a review. On the other hand, if you're listening through the Mouse Books website, do me a favor and just send me an email and tell us if there's a way we could change the show to make you happier. If you like the books themselves, do what you can to help spread the word by sharing Mouse Books with other people or just helping spread the idea, posting social media or whatever. Thanks a lot, and let's get on with the show. didn't have a concept that like people should be nice i think in a sense that's what we get wrong like he might have been a big bullshitter in a certain sense but that wasn't an anti-heroic feature of his character however he immediately has a bad afterlife Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Mouse Book Club. My name is David Dwayne. I'm the president of the club and your guide. Today, we'll be joined for the first time by a repeat guest. Emily Austin is assistant professor of classics at the University of Chicago, where she studies emotion in Greek literature, which is one of the reasons why we're so fascinated to talk to her. In the previous episode, we talked about Achilles in the Iliad, and today... We'll be talking about Homer's other great protagonist, Odysseus, in The Odyssey. So please enjoy the conversation. Well, well, welcome, everybody, to another installment of the Mouse Books podcast. Um, My name is Brian Chappelle. I'm the editor here. I got my start as an AP Latin geek in high school. We read the Aeneid. I was a classics minor. College. I wanted to be a classics professor. When people asked me how I learned to write, it's because I knew Latin. That's what I tell them. And so that's awesome. My question is, what is it about the ancient world that continues to fascinate you? I guess I'm continually amazed that there's a lot of common human questions that keep recurring in different cultures. So for example, right now I'm interested in conceptions of loneliness and solitude in the ancient world. And I continually struck that there are common human stories. So at first I work on the Iliad and I'm like, this is not why I do things. Like I don't really care about eternal glory, but then the more I look at them, I'm like, well, they're also fighting for a range of reasons. They're fighting for their families. They're fighting for their neighbor who's right next to them. There's um, obviously a whole lot of differences, but the texts are very rich. So maybe the more I work on them, the more I start to find points of intersection. My next series of questions is about this theme. Yeah. Kind of hell and underworld and so yeah. forth. So the first question is, is, is more factual. Like, yeah. can you describe the underworld in the ancient Greek imagination? You don't yes. have to go every single layer and every signpost, but... Um, essential characteristics and key differences and so forth. Yeah. It was great to reread this in isolation, just book 11, and and to really think about this question again. Hades is not a place of punishment. I think that's the main key difference. 
we call it the underworld because I guess in the imagination of the ancient Greeks, they thought about the gods as being in the sky or on earth. This actually corresponds to at least some descriptions of um, the three, there's three brother gods. So Zeus is the main one we hear of. He gets called the father of gods and men. He got a third of the lot, he got the sky. And then his brother Poseidon got the sea and their brother Hades got the underworld. That really struck me as a way of thinking about just like the division of reality. But anyway, so it's not a place of punishment. It's just a place where souls go and they die and they don't have bodies. Uh, and this is seen as a poverty, at least in Homer. They're just shades. It's not soul in the way we understand it. Um, Socrates, this is a different text. Socrates imagines it as like a pretty good deal, at least in some of his dialogues, because he thinks it'll be fun to meet all these people who have died before and talk to them. Um, but that might be the most positive impression of the underworld, at least for the Greek imagination. And now, so the next question I wanted to make a connection to your work um, on sure. emotion, particularly sure. grief and lament, which seems yeah. to be pretty relevant to these questions here of life and death that we're, yeah. that we're dealing with in this book. Yeah. Um, feel free to give us a brief summary of your sort of uh, work in, in the field of emotion in Homer and then how uh -huh. you see it um, applying to the situation that we're talking about today. My book project um, on the Iliad looks at the question of <laughs> how the Iliad depicts why grief makes you want to do stuff, basically. So um, Achilles' grief in certain ways disables him, but it also impels him to all kinds of activity, including a lot of deeds of vengeance. And those deeds of vengeance don't seem to help at all because he's just repeating them, repeating them, repeating them at the end of the poem. So what I do in my book is I look uh, at language that's specific to Achilles' experience of grief, it's just language of longing. Um, and I look at how this longing depicts what I call in the book, ruptured wholeness, like a wholeness that's got a big gap in it or a tear in this fabric of what his life was. And that's how he describes his grief. And I think if, you, if we pay attention to that, we understand that what he's lost is just gone. He's lost this person. He's, the person is not recoverable. So the impulse to act that's driven by this whole, by this loss, it's a kind of futile impulse. None of the action heals the longing that's at the, the basis of his desires. Does that make sense so far? It sounds pretty relevant to how we live today. I know. Repeating, yeah. repeating toxic patterns. Because everyone takes for granted grief and anger are related because we see it. But no one that I saw was really talking in the Iliad like, well, why are they related? Like, what is going on when grief gives rise to anger? And I think what's going on is you're somehow impelled by this desire to recover what's lost. And that's what the language is showing us with the Achilles. I guess the point of intersection with the Odyssey is that um, the totality of the loss or something. So when in book 23 of the Iliad, Patroclus's shade appears to Achilles and um, says like, you need to bury me. And it's very, it's very echoed here <laughs> um, in that Achilles says, I know, I know, I know, I'm going to bury you, but um, approach me and let's embrace one another. 
um, and, and take our delight in that. And, and he can't embrace Patroclus, the shade disappears when he tries to embrace him. And that gets repeated here even more emphatically because you have this triple attempt to embrace, embrace his mother, right? Um, and, and he can't. And, and there's a similar lament, the dead don't have any substance. Um, in the Iliad, it's like, they don't have any phrenes, which is a word for mind or wit or understanding. It's a weird way to talk about the insubstantiality of the shade, um, but it's more developed here. There's no sinews, there's no body. And the fact that his mother doesn't even recognize him until she's drunk from this sheep milk, I think it, it is a little bit bleak, the irrecoverability of the lost person, even this encounter with the shades. Tiresias can kind of give him some prophecies about what's coming at home. But there's no sense that the reunion with his mother and death will be like what he had in life. Although I don't think that informs and shapes Odysseus's action in the same way as it does in the Iliad, but it's definitely like, I sometimes I think about the Iliad and the Odyssey as like, they have overlapping themes, but they emphasize them for different story ends. So a lot of the themes I'm interested in in the Iliad are in the Odyssey, but the story end is different, so they get a little bit subdued. So this word for longing is pothe that I look at in the Iliad. His mother dies of pothos, which is the same word, just different ending. Um, she dies of pothos for Odysseus. So the only person in Homer who dies from this longing, um, which I just found really stunning. Could you talk a little bit more about emotion that you see expressed one way in the Iliad and another way in the Odyssey? Well, what's weird about the Odyssey from the point of view of my work is that there's a very abrupt intervention where vengeance works, but it's really because of the gods. So Odysseus gets home and he has this real problem in his house where these suitors have been eating up the substance of his home. And he sees this need to like really recover his home of killing all of them. So he kills, I don't know, over a hundred young men. And this is all the young men of his city. And then he's gonna be king of the city. So you have this kind of problem at the end of the Odyssey that just gets solved by the god. Kind of unsatisfying if what you're interested in is vengeance. <laughs> but I don't think the Odyssey is interested in that. It's interested in homecoming. Like what's very compelling and there's a lot of closure around is like the recognition scenes between Odysseus and his wife. So the Odyssey is more interested in like how do you accomplish this? How do you accomplish a reunion after 20 years? How do you deal with having lost all of your men on the way home? And I think to some degree, there's a little bit of, of narrative closure that's happening too. So it's not exactly emotion driven, but, uh, but yeah, those are the themes that I think dominate. When you reread the excerpt that we put in the mouse book, what did you see? So the things that stood out to me were how strange it was, how little I understood what was happening really and truly. I was just feel like there's a whole world of ritual that's getting evoked here in what he's doing that we just don't have a lot to contextualize it. So it was one thing that really struck me. I was just thinking more about how the Odyssey is or isn't an answer to the Iliad or a voice in response to the Iliad. So obviously the quote you have on the back um, is Achilles. I would rather be a paid servant in a poor man's house and be above ground than a king of kings among the dead. That's not Achilles in the Iliad. And looking at all of these great heroes from the war underground, 
especially because Odysseus himself says in the Odyssey, you know, twice or three times blessed is anyone who died at Troy when he thinks he's about to be shipwrecked and to die just kind of by drowning and alone. And he says, you know, it would have been much better to die at Troy. And book 11 in particular maybe is functioning as a little bit of a turning point, like really emphasizing we're not doing the heroism in battle epic. We're doing something else. Um, and the prophecy that he's going to die old and surrounded by friends, it, you know, it makes you think of um, what is glory? What is honor? Do we fight for being known after our lives or, you know, what, you know, what is a, what is a successful life? I think the Odyssey is really grappling with that as an, as an answer to the Iliad or as a counter voice to the Iliad. In my mind, a big part of being a Homerist is being able to recognize patterns, but then being sensitive also to things that break those patterns. Could you talk a little bit about in this selection, uh, things that you see that are sort of on pattern, off pattern? I mean, maybe that's part of my point. It stands out so much. It doesn't feel patterny. It feels very idiosyncratic. Um, I guess something that's common uh, is the list. So. Uh, the list of the female heroes or mothers of heroes or lists are, I don't know what to do with them, but they're absolutely a feature of Homeric. I mean, the whole context, I think is a little bit of a breaking of the rule because so when, when Odysseus stops, uh, like kind of pretends he's going to bed and they're all like, no, no, we'll give you presents and it's not late and keep singing and we can tell you're a really good bard and you speak things that are like truth. And that context of Odysseus singing his own story, that is a kind of rule breaking. I mean, the, the Iliad doesn't have that at all. Such an extended insert. It lasts four books, I think, of the Odyssey is Odysseus retelling his story. And it is the story of how he lost all of his men. Could you talk a little bit about how you understand the character of Odysseus? There's sort of a, in the contemporary imagination he's seen as sort of like a bullshitter uh, but how do you think about him so what I always tell my students about Odysseus especially is like the ancient Greeks didn't have a concept that like people should be nice right niceness is not an ancient Greek virtue so I think in a sense that's what we get wrong like he might have been a big bullshitter in a certain sense but that wasn't an anti-heroic feature of his character that is to say he um, like you, one of the ways of being excellent in the ancient world is with speech and the fact that he's able to use his storytelling gifts to get home, I don't think necessarily would have been a bad thing. However, he immediately has a bad afterlife in Attic tragedy. And I think that's probably also influenced us. Like he is a really bad guy in the Athenian tragic world consistently over and over again. And, but that being said, what I love about Achilles is that he's, he is a very sincere character. He's very compelling to me because he says what he thinks and he acts according to what he says and thinks. Odysseus, I can't get my head around him at all. His virtue is endurance. He really, really, really does suffer a lot on the way home and he gets home. He, he says this when he gets home, like, he, he talks to his heart 
He says like, you are, you've been enduring, you've endured worse than us on the way home and you can endure the bad things that you're seeing now for the sake of recovering your household. So, you know, that would definitely be something I would want to talk about alongside of his gift of storytelling is the, the long suffering, super, super patient. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You've also done some work about the reception and current climate around the classics. Tell us about the state of the field. Oh, it's so rich. I like working on this because it's influenced a lot of things that have influenced the people who we care about now. Sometimes I think it's easier to look at contemporary problems that are being presented in a slightly unfamiliar lens. Uh, And then I come back to my world with all of my strongly held opinions, whatever they are, and and there's something that's been added and enriched. So classical reception stuff is fun because the voice, as you said, is very contemporary. I think my favorite thing to teach, at least as a reception of Homer, is Alice Oswald's Memorial. Are you familiar with this? No. Can you tell us about it? It's really worth reading. She calls it an excavation she took away all the narrative from the Iliad and just gives a list of the names of everyone who was killed in order. So that's the beginning. And then she translates the little death bios that you have in the Iliad. So when someone dies in the Iliad, suddenly you learn that they had a family or a past or the farm that they lived on or where they lived. So it's this moment at the moment of death, a little insight into their life. This happens all the time. So she translates those and intersperses them with similes that are you wouldn't even call them translations they're but they're wonderful and like she's such a good poet and so what I like about it is not the Iliad it's something else but the relationship with the Iliad is so compelling and evocative because this is part of what the Iliad is part of the Iliad is saying all these people died and they were real people so I think that is still happening especially in poetry I see it happening all the time that um People are turning to the Iliad to grapple with war. And can I tell you one more story? These are not my personal stories, but um, there was a speaker at a conference who does a lot of drama work with maybe, I don't know what you would say, like maybe underserved communities in various cities. So he was traveling around the United States for like 10 years and he would live in these different places and talk to people. So he was in, I don't remember where, maybe San Antonio and was at a juvenile prison. And he spent the morning or a couple hours talking to a a 13 year old girl who had killed her mother because her mother had turned in her father for drug dealing or something like that. So he had this conversation. Then he went to a bookstore and he picked up, he he was not familiar with all, but he picked up a collection of 10 ancient Greek tragedies. And the first one was the story of Electra. If you're not familiar with the story of Electra, this is the same house, Tantalus's descendants. They had a lot of issues in this house. So Agamemnon, when he came home from the Trojan War, was killed by his wife and their son and daughter, Orestes and Electra. Um, well, Orestes killed his mother, but in Sophocles, Electra, she's like super spurring him on. So anyway, he read this and he was just like blown away. So it was like unproblematic for him. He was like, this is a great opportunity to deal with these real life issues that I'm encountering and I could do this through drama. So those are just a few things that I see people doing or that I'm excited about. It makes me think of the, the uh, play Antigone and Ferguson. Um, yes. Yeah, there's so much good stuff happening in drama right now. And, and also um, 
the the first season of The Wire is often thought of as being a, a, the Iliad plot. Um, oh, I oh really cool. Yeah, so o- Omar is the greatest warrior, and his and his companion and lover is killed, and he goes on a revenge. Um, does anyone have any questions that you want to raise? Hi, I'm Shaista. So my question is, these two stories have that hero's journey arc, but in a less high concept form that we usually see translating well in films like Star Wars or Die Hard. Yeah. Um, so when Odysseus returns home without his men, I wonder about the implications of PTSD, mm-hmm. depression, guilt, etc., and mm-hmm. whether you feel the outcome or end result would translate the same or as well in modern times. Yeah, thanks for that question. I guess Jonathan Shea, who is the first person who started talking about Homeric poetry in terms of PTSD, he has a book called Achilles in Vietnam, and he really traces what Achilles goes through in in those terms. He sees with the Odyssey, it's more of the story of the difficulty of coming home after a, a traumatic war, not just about some immediate effect, but like these really long-term problematic effects. Odysseus is coming home as someone who's already been through a lot. I do think, and I know I might be repeating myself a little bit, I think there is a way of reading the homecoming as having a lot of closure. So when when he finally reunites with his wife, they they finally reunite, they weep, they, they go to bed. Athena holds back the dawn, so they have a long night, and they tell stories all night. And they take delight in one another's stories. So I I guess I think that these poems have a lot of layers, which I think you kind of brought out. Like, it's not like one clear story that's telling one thing, but you could read a lot of things that we have like contemporary words for. I do think, I think part of his suffering is absolutely that he lost all of his men. The degree to which he starts weeping. So while he's on this island, uh, the bard is they're having a feast and the bard is singing and he just starts uncontrollably weeping to the point he's in disguise to the point that his host is like what is wrong with you you know who are you (laughs) like there must be a story here and that's when he sings for four books this whole story so I think there is something real there about what we would call trauma um, but that is getting healed or put into a hole by the storytelling process I think that's a real aspect of it I'm also thinking too about the psychology of an ancient Greek, whereby so many actions and moods and and states of being are attributed to to gods, yeah, rather than to your own mind or your even your own experiences. Yeah, so I wonder how that how that that's different from the hero's journey in a Western that's right. context, which is it's me making decisions from my own character. Yeah. Whereas character is defined by exter- a number of external factors in the ancient world. That's an interesting idea. And of course we were able to include the chapter from the Aeneid. Yeah. Here's um, this chapter as well. Yeah. I wonder if you could just kind of summarize what the Aeneid is, how it's, how it's sure. rewriting Homer and then how, yeah. you know, what's going on in this scene. I mean, the Aeneid is awesome from the point of view of reception of Homer in that it's like, okay, it took you 24 books to have an Iliad and 24 books to have an Odyssey. And in 12 books, I'm going to do both and I'm going to reverse them. 
and it's going to seem, sorry, this is not a good answer. So it starts, <laughs> starts from where the Iliad almost ends, right? It starts with the sack of Troy and gets us to the founding of Rome. Virgil is standing in for Rome and saying, like, we can have a Homeric epic too. I mean, you know, there's these stories about our founders coming all the way from Troy. And we can also make this not just a story about the Trojan War and homecoming, but also a story about founding. So reverses the order. You do the homecoming stuff of Aeneas as this exile from a burning city. And he does all the Odyssey things. He's making his way home, all the perils and overcoming them. But they're all different because they're all about potential foundings of a city. And he gets waylaid in different ways. And then he makes it to Italy. And then you have the Iliad. You have the battle books. Um, you have the founding of Rome. So it's just brilliant as a rewriting because it's in some ways looks like he's very obviously checking boxes. But in every way, he's also saying like, we're doing a Roman story. We're, we're talking about the founding of a Roman city. And this is not, we're not trying to be Greek. So book six of the Aeneid, where we get this descent into the underworld is a pivotal point in the story of the Aeneid. We've done all the homecoming travel stuff. He's landed in Italy, but now we have to do the founding of a city. And there's already people in Italy, right? There's, and the end of the story is known. The end of the story is that Rome becomes an empire. Well, it's not quite an empire at the time that Virgil is writing it, but um, it's a world power. So book six uh, manages to incorporate the future glories of Rome in this. This vision of the future that Aeneas has while he's in the underworld, but at the same time, it contextualizes it. We're in a slightly unreal space. It allows Virgil to be like, I'm not saying I think Rome is great. If you're looking for the imperial Rome is great story, you could read it in there. But if you're looking for the Virgil is very intelligent poet who's telling a complicated story, that's there too. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. A huge thanks again to Professor Austin for returning for another conversation about Homer and her book, Grief and the Hero, The Futility of Longing in the Iliad, is something you should definitely check out. We'll include a link in the show notes. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.